Video Game The Movie The Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Video Game The Movie The Podcast. I'm your other other host, Lexi Conwell. I am your host, Mackenzie Eastrom. <laughs> I'm your other host, Nathan Eastrom. That felt weird. <laughs> well, I don't know if we need to do this every time, but I kind of enjoyed the vibe. So, uh, what yeah, are we talking about this week? This week we are talking about Laura Croft and the Cradle of Life. Ancient legends tell of a place called the Cradle of Life. It is the source of all life and also of death. There lies a power that no man should ever hold. Someone is after this ancient artifact. What we don't know is why. That terrifies us. Pandora's box. Do you mean the Greek myth? That's the Sunday School version. It's a weapon more powerful than you could ever imagine. Her Majesty formally requests that you find and recover this box before it's too late. Oh. Well, now that I have Her Majesty's permission. So this rock is the map to Pandora's box. And just think you could take it now. Oh, Croft. Do you really think I would do that to you? action movie based on the video game series that we talked about in a previous episode. I just want to get out ahead of here and clarify that the title of this movie is actually Lara Croft, colon, Tomb Raider, M-Dash, The Cradle of Life. <laughs> and unfortunately, it is Tomb Raider, T-O-M-B, and not Tomb Raider with a two. Which would have been a way better use of your like stylizing the title. But regardless, yes, we are here to talk about 2003's Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. It's a bit of a mouthful. I'm just going to call it Tomb Raider 2, I think, or yeah, Laura Croft 2. That's quite reasonable. Or Cradle of Life. Or Cradle of Life. There's a lot of options here. We know what we're talking about. All right. Initial thoughts. My initial thoughts on this movie are that this was an elaborate excuse to do a lot of unnecessary stunts, even in context. <laughs> that is not an inaccurate review of the film. Nathaniel. Uh, I agree with that, but also I just kind of liked it. 
Yeah. I think this as a film, like, just like on the bare bones structural level of filmmaking, is kind of better than the first one. And I think a lot of that can be chalked up to the fact that this one had a director who's good at making movies sometimes. Hmm. Interesting. Lexi, do you know who the director on this one is? Lol, no. <laughs> Have you heard of Speed before? There's a room in the University of Minnesota Crookston called Bead Ballroom. I don't think it's the same thing. <laughs> Probably not. This is the same guy who directed the uh, movie Speed starring Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. Keanu so, like, Reeves is in Speed... Wait, no, I'm thinking of a different thing. I'm thinking of Speed Racer. No. <laughs> Although I would super watch Keanu Reeves in a Speed Racer movie, don't get me wrong. No. Speed is a well-known, stupid but fun action thriller from 1994 about a terrorist who puts a bomb on a city bus that will explode if the bus drops below 50 miles per hour. And Keanu Reeves plays a bomb squad officer who manages to get on the bus and has to try and, like, coach the driver who ends up getting replaced with Sandra Bullock because the actual bus driver gets injured to keep the bus driving so that it doesn't blow up while he tries to figure out how to stop the terrorist. Huh. You know, that kind of sounds and, neat, actually. And also it the is terrorist neat. is King Koopa. Yes. What? <laughs> the terrorist is played by the same actor who plays okay. King Koopa in uh, the, the Super Mario movies. Yeah. Um, I, I thought but... it was actually King Koopa, and I was like, what horrible <laughs> Mario spinoff have we gotten into? It's a me. Uh, yeah, so that was directed by Jan de Bont, who is a Dutch cinematographer by trade. He's done a lot of stuff with Paul Verhoeven and... Later on, moved to Hollywood and started doing bigger, like, Hollywood action stuff. He was the cinematographer for Die Hard and The Hunt for Red October. Uh, but there was a stint there where he tried directing movies, including Speed. But later on, Laura Croft, colon, Tomb Raider, M-Dash, The Cradle of Life. <laughs> so on a sheer competency level, this guy at very least knew to get all of the shots he needed. This is a complaint I had with the first movie, where it had very weird edits because I got the sense that they did not get enough coverage. Mm, this one yeah. doesn't have those because it was shot competently by somebody who knows how to shoot a movie. That's fair. And it, it on a story level, makes a lot more one-to-one -one sense. It definitely makes a lot more sense. It flows relatively well. It's possible that I was just grumpy, but I didn't like this movie. <laughs> there is one major problem with this movie, looking back on it. I try my best to separate that from my take on the overall quality of the movie, because there's no goddamn way in hell anybody making a movie in 2003 thought bioweapons, but actually global pandemic was something that people were actually going to believe now in 2020 yeah that didn't age well at all it is weird watching so the the plot of this movie is or the villain plot of this movie is find pandora's box which apparently has a super plague in it and the guy who is the villain is like a bio weapons dealer who specifies in like deadly contagious diseases he was notably was... a former nobel prize winner yeah yeah which is just so... a weird transition but anyway keep going I you, you gotta keep going somehow where are you gonna where are you gonna get more after that 
In this economy? In this economy? Well, in 2003, sure. <laughs> 2003, yeah, actually, the economy whatever. was doing fine in 2003. In that uh. economy? <laughs> but the whole... It does feel a little pandemic now. Mm-hmm. It's not really feeding into the same tropes, because honestly, the tropes that evolved to create the pandemic conspiracy didn't exist in their full form in 2003 we were two years out from 9-11 there was a lot of cultural development between there and now yeah oh boy boy. not great cultural development but development one way or the other Uh, Uh. so there are some parts of it that feel weird not in an entirely dissimilar way to when you watch a movie made before 9-11 and they're just like real gung-ho about the terrorism yeah it's just one of those things you kind of have to accept about watching movies that are, like, older than this year. Honestly, even the movies that come out this year are, are wrong. <laughs> They're bad <laughs> and confusing, and they exist in a parallel universe where everything is normal. But, you know, it's one of those game, those qualities of playing this game of watching video game movies. But what did you think of the movie? What I think, again, I actually think it was better than the first one. I think it's a solidly dumb action movie with solidly like done effects and solidly done stunts and surprisingly like way less sexually objectifying this time they did have that once kind of obligatory towel scene but it it was not a shower scene so there's that yeah she's Uh. never entirely naked and also there's a lot of scenes of sexy young gerard butler just stripping so i'm okay with it it seems a little more even (laughs) yeah that's that's fair they they were kind of naked at at the same time by the way sexy young gerard butler's in this movie (laughs) (laughs) all right do we want to start talking about the actual quick rundown of the plot here so the overall plot of this movie is that off the coast of this greek island an earthquake unearths the opening to the Lunar Temple, which was a storehouse that Alexander the Great used to put all of his treasures. All the stuff that didn't go to the Great Library at Alexandria is the idea. And among them is this legendary orb that supposedly will point the way to Pandora's box. So once this earthquake happens, a bunch of different treasure hunting groups converge on the coast of this island to search for the temple. But they're all looking in the wrong place because Laura has figured out that the currents are changing direction and pushing everybody off course. And she knows where to look to find the real entrance to the temple. So she goes down here, she finds the orb, but her and her partners get waylaid by these this Chinese gang that steals the orb and kills her partners. So she goes home with pictures of the orb to try and figure out what it says when she is hired by uh, is MI6 yeah. to figure out the whereabouts of this arms dealer who is played by Kieran Haynes. He's an Irish character actor. He's actually very good in this. He's good in everything. Who has basically struck a deal with this Chinese gang to get the orb and they want to get to it first so that he can't find this bioweapon. So she agrees to work with them, but only if they will let her work with her former partner 
played by Gerard Butler, who is in a maximum security prison for kind of vague reasons, but it's implied that he was a convicted traitor because he deserted his military unit when he and Laura were like in the special forces, I think is the idea. So there's baggage between them there because they used to be romantically involved and she was betrayed by him on like a professional level. But he knows this organization and is the only person that she really knows well enough to know that she can't trust (laughs) is how I'm going to put it. Curse your Uh, sudden but inevitable betrayal. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So they get together and they track this gang down to their hideout in a remote region outside of Shanghai and try and strike a deal where they will pay to get the orb back so that this arms dealer doesn't get the bioweapon. The deal goes south, and they end up in a shootout with this gang, but they get the location of the drop for the orb, like the trade-off for the orb. And they get, importantly, a medallion worn by the Chinese guy who stole it from the temple that has the decode code for the orb. Right, yes, that is also important. So it, the orb essentially is the freaking Enigma machine, and you need a secondary key to unlock it. It's uh, it's a so, weird sound. It's weird sound magic when you make it. Yeah. Yeah. It's sound waves is which I get converted to light. Oh, we'll okay, go, we'll keep, let me keep let's going. speed speed yeah. through the rest of it. Uh, so they go to the trade and they don't get the orb, but Laura gets close enough to put a tracking device on the crate, which the uh, arms dealer takes in a helicopter. Uh, They track this down to a facility in Hong Kong, which they do an assault on to try and get the orb, but at the last minute uh, this arms dealer I keep keep saying that his name's Jonathan Rice, and that's going to be easier to say, so I'm just going to say that from now on. So Rice Rice gets there at the last minute when they're trying to get the orb, Uh, but she gets enough Um, information about it to send back to her tech guy who is still in this movie briefly. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And they figure out that and I am going off the rails here. So she hijacks a Chinese family's television gets the orb to work. It's a magic hologram orb now. It shows her visions of Africa and they're like yeah Africa that's where the thing is at. So they go to Africa where Digimon Hensu helps her get to the Cradle of Life, which is inside this mountaintop that is guarded by a, like, tribe that has lived there for, like, millennia, I think it's said. They get into there, there's some fighting. Oh, at some point before this, she ditches Gerard Butler because she doesn't trust him. But he shows up in the final moments and helps save her ass. But also, before they go there... Jonathan Rice and his men find them right. because they went to Lara's mansion and they had been spying on them through hit, through the uh, tech dude, Bryce. Yeah. Uh, so they know where it is and where she's going. They just don't know the exact location. So they get her to guide them to the Cradle of Life, but they don't know about the Shadow Guardians, which the tribe warns Lara about. 
so most of Rice's men get killed, but Lara manages to get the orb into this stone pedestal that opens the door to the Cradle of Life, which is a weird, twisty cave system, kind of like the Escher scene in Labyrinth. Pandora's box is in a big pit of acid. Rice tries to force Laura to get at the thing. He gets thrown in the acid. Gerard Butler is like, let's take Pandora's box because it's my reward for like doing all this shit. And Laura's like, no, that's a really bad idea. What are we even going to do with it? And then uh, he's going to shoot her, but she shoots him first. And then the movie ends on like a weird joke about african wedding ceremonies and that's it it's it's, the whole thing it's not even that he's gonna shoot her it's that he doesn't think that she has the emotional capacity to kill him so he's just gonna take the box and leave i mean he's threatening her he pulls a gun he reaches back and pulls a gun on her there's that classic who shot who split second, but you already know who shot who because it's a movie and it would be insane if Gerard Butler killed Laura Croft at the end of this movie. You know, anyway. they almost tricked me there. I, I For a moment, I was like, wait a minute. I mean, bold. I would take that. That would be a really interesting way to end this franchise because this is the last Laura Croft colon Tomb Raider movie. They never make another one after this. Yeah, and the only reason for that is... This movie didn't do well critically, like a lot of people hated it. (laughs) It did moderately better ratings-wise than the first one, but not enough to make much of an impact. But it did still make money. It made not as much as the first movie, which was kind of riding on the brand recognition of the character in a very period of very peak popularity for her. But it made enough that Paramount was like, yeah, let's make a third one. But Angelina Jolie just decided she was done. She was happy with the first two and didn't want to play the character again. So she just walked away. Hmm. So they they just put it to rest for a while and then rebooted it in 2018. So yeah, that's a basic rundown of Laura Croft, colon, Tomb Raider, M-Dash, The Cradle of Life. Uh. Uh, do we want to go a little more beat by beat now? One of the first thoughts I had that I want to express here is that this movie does not feel as much of the need as you would expect to like sell anybody on the magic shit. Like MI6 is like, yeah, sure, Pandora's box after like a very minimal explanation. Yeah. Yeah, this movie feels a lot more like Raiders of the Lost Ark in how it deals with the supernatural. It never feels the need to state in the first act that magic is a thing or demonstrate it at all. It just builds slowly on the idea that Pandora's box is real by giving cues throughout the movie that this is an actual thing that exists somewhere and maybe the magic that exists in the myth is real to a point. So that by the time you get to the end where they're pulling a glowing box out of a pool of black acid, it doesn't feel like it came out of nowhere. (laughs) I mean, I think more magical than that is, you know, the shadow guardians that can like teleport through trees. The shadow guardians are the first real like this is magic existing in the real world and murdering people by pulling them into trees. Which those things are terrifying. That's, yeah. that's a really harrowing scene, honestly. And the effects in it look pretty good for the time. They did a pretty good job on that. Uh, this also, this movie opens like I would expect a Tomb Raider movie to open. Like here is a weird event. This is a woman raiding a tomb. <laughs> 
But this time right. it's a real tomb, unlike the it's first movie. It's a real movie. tomb. <laughs> it's a real tomb with actual artifacts, and it's like related to the plot. It's great. It just starts doing things that are relevant to the movie immediately. Also, she does a lot of jet ski stunts, which is fun. Again, unnecessary stunts, even in context. <laughs> Like she yeah, showed the first the first time she shows up, she just shows off to her partners on the boat. That's it. She's literally just showing off. Yeah. Yes, I'd also seen the like skin tight gray suit she's in in this opening sequence in a lot of the advertising before. Like I'd seen it around. Mm-hmm. Out of context, it looks like super slinky. In context, it's a wetsuit and it's fine. And she's never dressed like oh. that. For the rest of the movie. Wait, really? I didn't even notice. I was just like, wow, that thing looks hideous in this movie. But no, that makes so much sense that it's just a wetsuit. Oh my God, I it's hate advertising. It's just a wetsuit. <laughs> the weird thing is, yeah, it's in all of the advertising. It's that like silver bodysuit she's wearing with like a holster. And it, it's implied through that advertising that it's like, I don't know, some kind of like spy gear that she's wearing the whole movie. It's like in the opening scenes, she's literally underwater. So she's wearing a wetsuit. Like, it's yeah. fine. Uh, yeah. It's not reasonable. like a realistic wetsuit design, but it's not it's not nearly as bad as that advertising makes it look. Yeah, I think yeah, I think the wardrobe in general in this movie is a lot better than the first one because it it's more like clothing that someone would actually wear. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's even a like direct parallel winter outfit where it's like, oh yes, that is an outfit that would keep you warm, as opposed to the like insano bonkers short shorts and like fur coat from the first movie. <laughs> Uh, she's wearing like an outfit that a human would wear to a cold place it's really really great she also does some like trick shots off of a horse she again unnecessary stunts (laughs) that that whole scene was completely unnecessary she's riding like side saddle all sexy like doing gun shooting targets while riding full speed on a horse and then sees a helicopter does a weird flip around to shoot a target backwards and rides home that (laughs) after she comes back from greece with the or with not the orb but with a lot of anger about not having the orb there is a sequence which i would like to call what we wish rich people were like where she just does a series of cool harmless things like doing trick shots off of her horse and like having kendo practice with her butler and her tech guy and like <laughs> randomly breaking things. telling them angrily telling them to read greek mythology so that they can find this fucking box uh, yeah so yeah then mi6 shows up and she literally calls them pussies I mean, not literally, but she basically (laughs) slams the MI6 for being, like, sissies, which is wild, but, like, honestly, Laura is kind of stone cold in this movie in a way that I appreciate. They have to establish that she's a top in all ways. Every single moment, she is doming everyone she meets. (laughs) Laura Croft, Dom. Which is way better characterization than in the first movie. I mean, it's not that much different, though. It's not very different, but it feels more settled. Like, they know this is what they're going for. I suppose. Yeah, in that 
we're kind of going really random on this one. I don't think there's as much to talk about because it is a sequel to a different movie. And also we've talked about Tomb Raider. This feels a little bit more like the games, in my opinion, in that it's a very like simple one-to-one kind of like adventure quest thing. It's a very straightforward cause and effect follow the leads kind of movie which is a plot that you see a lot in video games where it's like okay you get to the temple but the villain gets the the MacGuffin and escapes okay so you have to track down the villain so you need to get your partner and then you go to the China level where you fight in the terracotta soldiers room and there's a big shootout and then the villains escape to Hong Kong. So you have to go to Hong Kong and then you do like the raid the villains lair level. It's it's very much like that. It's like, OK, this happens. So now they have to go to this new big set piece and do this action sequence and then the next thing happens but it all works like it all holds together as a plot i think a little better than the first one the cause and effect is stronger yeah yeah and the villain is also kind of like devastatingly hardcore and also like awful he's terrible and he's intelligent like the villains last time were the illuminati and i never really got that invested in them as a thing they just seemed like ambiguously shitty yeah rice is a very interesting villain he clearly has a modus operandi he knows what he's doing he's usually at least one step ahead in that he's just logical and knows what the fuck is going on like he's not an idiot (laughs) which is appreciated but also he does like kill a businessman right in front of another group of like potential clients just to prove that he can he does a lot of very casual murder the the shailing the chinese gang uh send a messenger he's supposed to bring an orb but he instead brings a nokia phone so that they can contact him because they realize that the orb is more expensive than than uh they realized and so he's just you know like oh kill a messenger whatever he's dead and he's just like you must not have liked your messenger and they're like yeah we we sent him to die i didn't like him and it's just like geez well that's the other thing is that the shay ling are also intelligent like it's not a series of like it's not some big shady giant organization like the illuminati where everybody's literally working for one head guy it's like a series of different shitty groups of people that are all intelligent enough to know that they've got something worth like fighting like they know how to operate in the like shady business world it's not just i don't know i just like that that there's at least two groups here that are like both decently intelligent it's just that laura is gonna kill them if they're yeah. in her way and, yeah and, and big... un- unlike Go the ahead. first movie she does kill a lot of people the first movie there's a lot of like incapacitating people in very flashy almost killing them ways but like that there's that whole mansion scene where she takes out a whole bunch of people with like random tools and they're all like alive in this movie it's just like let's shoot the bad guys you know they they were sending the mobs at the at the player character they're dead now it's worth noting that part of that's probably because Laura Croft iconically uses two pistols and there's no goddamn way you can use those non-lethally. Yeah. That's <laughs> If you're yes. going to have it be Laura Croft Tomb Raider and you're going to use her iconic like stuff of the time like since they've kind of moved on to her being more of a bow and arrow type person. Yeah. But 
in the games of the time, she shot people. But what I like about how this movie handles that is that she gives people a chance most of the time. Mm -hmm. There's that scene where she's negotiating with the Shai Ling guy. She doesn't want to kill him. She wants to just work this out between them and she's totally willing to pay them. She's not like tricking them. She doesn't actually want to do this. She just wants the fucking orb. Yeah, she tries to she walk away after like beating him up um, because yeah, he tried to attack her. Yeah, when he attacks her, he f she fights back and then tries to leave. It's only when he legit tries to kill her that she kills him. Also, yeah. she does like some sick ass bayonet routines, which is like. Yeah, the soundtrack on that was incredible, actually. <laughs> the soundtrack on this movie actually slaps. <laughs> it's pretty consistently good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so in that scene, let's even just go over the action in this scene, because I think that's one of the best scenes in the movie, is the fight in the in the temple. So one, Shay Ling has like the best evil villain lair. They are just taken over a like ancient Buddhist temple. Awesome. Sick ass temple hideout. A plus. I would I totally hench. Was was it a Buddhist temple? I, I might have missed it's this, a, but I had an impression that it was like an old quarry. Well, no, they're definitely in like an ancient, I don't know if it's like a Buddhist temple, but it's definitely an ancient Chinese like imperial building of some kind because there's like hmm. giant fancy sculptures outside and okay. the inside I'm, has like thousands of terracotta soldiers. Well, the terracotta soldiers were something that he brought in. I I guess I thought it was just like a weird cave system. I Maybe I missed it. The outside had like a big carving in it. Either okay. way, pretty sick hideout. Uh, she tries to negotiate with the like leader of the gang and ends up having to fight him in like a field of terracotta soldiers and doing some sick flips and then she gets a like old timey gun and she's gonna try to shoot him with it but of course it doesn't work so she has to deflect his stuff with like cool bayonet tricks i don't know i'm just very down with this scene yeah she she does like the whole like soldier rifle like baton stance like i am now in soldier mode look how cool i am and then is very rigid regimented like doing flips as she's moving yeah, she gun. knows what she's doing which is always appealing like she never looks like she's improvising anything she always looks like she spent a thousand hours training on everything she touches yeah which is kind of dope honestly if i have one major complaint about the action in this movie is that she does do a lot of unnecessary flips yeah specifically flips like there's yep. a moment when she's in the temple at the very beginning and mm -hmm. like it starts early She's like climbing this chandelier to get the orb or whatever. And for no apparent reason in the middle of like climbing across it, she does a backflip or like a somersault. She, but... what, what she does is there's like two uh, like supports up to where the orb is. And it, it's like a slant. It's an upward slant. She does two somersaults up the this this thing. It's like... That's so hard and unnecessary. Yeah, <laughs> you could have just scooted. Way. Yeah, you could have like launched yourself much more effectively without the somersaults, dude. But she's clearly tricking for the Greek dudes that she's working with. Yeah, she does seem like she's yeah. planning a threesome at the end of this night. <laughs> 
There's that's, a little bit of tension there. That's fair. They are actually kind of hot. Oh, yeah. Uh. This movie starts with hot Greek dudes as Laura's partners. And they it does a very good job of, like, making you like these dudes. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not around for more than, like, what, 10, 15 minutes tops. They get murdered immediately. They get murdered really early. But I felt bad because I liked them. Yeah. <laughs> I liked Laura. I also just like that Laura seems to have friends everywhere, everywhere. on the planet. That is a thing that I appreciated about this movie is that every place they go, which is like all over the globe, she always knows somebody that she appears to have either worked with or helped out who is totally willing to like hang on to a bunch of her gear in case she ever needs it. (laughs) And also just like they all seem to like her. Like it seems to be this like... Oh yeah, Laura's great. <laughs> yeah, like when the- they first go to China, they rendezvous at this just random rural farm that is owned by just a normal Chinese family, but they have It's like an older lady. Yeah, yeah, it's like an older lady who lives outside of Shanghai, but she has just a cache of guns and like spy gear just on hand for Lara to use when she gets there. <laughs> and she makes a point of like, "Oh, I even took the liberty of tuning your bike." Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, okay, this random like 70-year-old farmer woman knows how to like fix up Laura's fancy bike. Cool. Look, I know farmers. They can figure it out. They have to fix machinery all the goddamn time. Although yeah, but like also this is a village or farm where it's like they have a wooden water wheel. I mean, every we don't see any evidence of like combustion engine technology on this farm. True, but that doesn't mean it's not there. That's they were fair. there for the guns and the motorcycles. We didn't get a purview of this woman's day-to-day existence as a Chinese farmer, and I don't personally know the techniques used by Chinese farmers. But yeah, much more than the first movie, I think this one gives the sense that Lara Croft has an existing career as a treasure hunter. She is already an established personality in this industry who has been all over the world and met lots of people, which is not a sense that you really get from the first movie outside of the photo of her army friends and her knowing Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. Also, her like, oh, they have history relationship this time between a random like soldier man and herself feels a lot better this time. I, I got their chemistry significantly more and I understood what their like vibes were beforehand. They have this very, we're very similar people, but we don't like to admit it kind of vibe going on. Yeah, there's a whole scene where it's like, you know we get along so well because we're basically the same person but opposite sides of the same coin so we're not alike but we're the same he's like the evil dude version of Lara Croft yeah there's a yeah yin yang stuff which is brought up a couple times in the movie and isn't not a theme but I think it could have been better integrated throughout it Mm -hmm. It feels like this movie had a little more potential for, like, paralleling if it wanted to, but it's not trying to be fancy. It's just trying to do its job, and I can kind of appreciate that. Which is six stunts. (laughs) Yeah, six stunts. We're gonna... The other thing... Another thing about this movie that dates it in a way that's interesting is how this movie deals with China. This is not a movie that could be made now. 
this plot where it's like mainland China is filled with evil gangs trying to like, not filled with, but like, I actually think this movie does a pretty good job of like making all of the places it goes seems like normal places that people live in with decent community. Like it's not, I don't think a terribly offensive rendering of any of these places. The mall was dope. But the the Chinese government would not not allow this movie to exist because it doesn't have Chinese characters that are good guys, just bad guys. Yeah. And the ones that are good guys are kind of implied to be counter to the government. So... And there's a major sequence that takes place in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's it's very mm. interesting that a movie is set so much in China, but not in the way that it would be now, where it's like trying to appeal to the Chinese market. It's unless you're like no, I guess film stuff. China has become a major player in the international film market, and so a lot of action movies, especially, insert a lot of stuff about China or put scenes in China or have characters from China interact with the plot. It's a thing now or it's like made in part with Chinese companies but there has to be script approval from the Chinese government effectively not officially necessarily but effectively I mean everyone uh, knows that China's pretty censorship yeah they have a very particular view of their nation they want to get across and the power to do that uh marvel has been toying with this a little bit in the last few years um Mm -hmm. it it comes across if you're watching a big mainstream movie and all of a sudden there's just like a really nice chinese person it's possibly to play for the chinese market and that character might have an entire plot line that is not in the american release because they do that now but in 2003 china was not the powerhouse in the film market i mean it was still it was still china but it wasn't (laughs) had it didn't have the film market that it did now so it's very interesting to see a movie that has so many of the trappings of what we would see as a modern action movie in china but like entirely different approach to it because it has no it has it owes nothing to the chinese government also hong kong which is dope i love hong kong yeah there's a i don't know how relevant this is to what we're talking about right now but interestingly they shot most of this movie on location but the sequence that is set in shanghai in the city is like one of the only like foreign location scenes that they shot on a soundstage is that the almost everything else yeah, that's the shootout in the square okay. where she it definitely rides the looked big like neon a soundstage. dragon sign. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel as naturalistic. I won- mm-hmm. I don't know if that's Chinese government or the fact that I don't know if any city is actually going to let a woman ride a neon dragon sign <laughs> across the sound block. Uh, maybe we should explain what happens in this scene because it's okay. a little bit confusing to talk about. So this the Shanghai scene... Uh, after they go to the Shailing hideout, they get the location for the handoff, where the the other Shailing gang members are going to give the orb to Jonathan Rice in this meetup in the center of Shanghai. So Lara and... I'm blanking on Daniel Craig. Or not. Uh, I'm Terry. blanking on Terry Gerard something. Butler's character name. Terry. Yeah. Terry. Oh, right. So Lara and Terry are watching the handoff from this shady motel room 
across the street from the square and waiting for the waiting for rice to show up so they can either get the orb or get him into custody whatever works and they don't really have a plan for how they're gonna do it but the shaling don't know they're there and jonathan rice doesn't so they at least have the element of surprise uh but they're not expecting this handoff to happen via helicopter (laughs) So yeah. Rice descends in a helicopter hovering over the city square in the middle of Shanghai and Lara and Terry decide that they need to do something or they're going to lose the orb and Rice. So she climbs out onto the roof and sneaks over to this big strung up neon sign. I don't know if it's neon, but it's a big light up sign with a Chinese dragon on it. And she climbs like onto the dragon and then like cuts a wire or like pushes the sign off so that it starts like sliding down over the square and starts picking off like Rice's mercenaries and shailing gang members with her guns while she's just like casually leaning back on the (laughs) side. Oh my god, the horse thing wasn't random, it was foreshadowing. Oh. I just realized that. Anyway, that gets her close enough to the helicopter that she can jump onto it and uh, put the tracker on the box as it gets handed off. Oh, Laura Croft also punches a shark in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. in the beginning. <laughs> she okay, punches- we kind of skipped over the first part because I forgot about shark punching. Okay. Uh. This is going to be all over the place, but there are a number of very distinct moments in this movie that we need to talk about. So yeah, right after. Like, I think this is Lexi's turn. I okay, talked yeah, about yeah. the last thing. If you, you want talk to talk about, about the shark punching, you can talk yeah. about shark punching. I, I, I forgot about the shark, but uh, yeah, no, the shark punching scene was absurd. So when they're diving in this movie, they've got these machines that will help them move through the water quickly. It it's like an, underwater an, skidoos. Sure, I don't know what a skidoo is. I was going to say motorcycle, Sorry. but whatever. Jet ski. Gotcha. Yeah, it's an underwater jet ski. And so when they're leaving the Luna Temple, which apparently it's the Luna Temple, not the Lunar Temple, uh, because Greek, I guess. I don't know. Um, they, the, the Shea Ling who had attacked her, uh, steal one of them and break hers. So now she has to get out of this collapsing temple and to the surface and away from this area. And so she resorts to cutting her arm, swimming out to, and attracting a shark, which she had seen earlier when she was driving in. And when it comes up to investigate and, you know, chomp on her, she just punches it in the snout making it angry but also not wanting to deal with her and she just grabs its fin and rides the shark to the surface (laughs) this is a terrible plan for so many reasons Uh, unnecessary stunts Not the least of which being is it seems to take an equal amount of time to wait for the shark to come, punch it in the snout and get a good hold on it as it would to just swim. Yeah, she notably doesn't have her breathing apparatus. So she's doing this to like get to the surface fast, but she waits so long. It's like, like, wow. She also doesn't have the the breathing at her apparatus, so she's lighter. So she could probably get up pretty quick. Humans float. It's not... It's just so absurd. The shark looks pretty good, though. 
Yeah, the shark looks okay. You know, the effects in this movie are pretty decent, except for the digital, like, moving around of the orb. There's a point where yeah. they have, like, a big... Yeah. They have the orb digitally, like, go into her eye, and it looks awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one doesn't look very good. That's one of those effects that I think probably looks really good in storyboarding. Like, ooh, this is gonna look dope. And then they animated it, and they're like, god damn it, but... <laughs> This is what the transition's built on, so I guess we'll keep it. Like, I don't think even at the time they thought that looked cool. <laughs> Especially because the orb mostly looks like one of those, like, garden ball planters that you keep water in so that the plants will water themselves. Oh, I think it looks like a dragon ball. It does also look oh. a bit like a dragon ball. It's like a clear stainless not stainless what stained glass like yellow sphere with like a bunch of black markings on it yeah but like not letters or anything just like it looks kind of like morse code yeah it, it's it's only tr translatable via certain frequencies or something which are inscribed on a medallion which um hmm this movie is very raiders of the lost ark <laughs> Yeah, it does it does play by those rules. It does, however, simplify the whole thing by having both of the artifacts have been in the same place. So yeah, the that fact nice. that they get split up is just two people like they just got taken by someone and they have to go after it. It's it would have been very easy to be like, and now we have to find the thing to code it in another location somewhere else. Which I think for a movie that's trying to be tight like this would have maybe made it a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Do we have any other points we want to go to specifically? Anything that really stood out? Oh, I do want to point out that the temple at the beginning looked extremely like a theme park attraction. <laughs> like, I had distinct flashbacks to, I believe, Universal Studios' Poseidon Adventure. Like, the waiting room that is this, like, artificial cave system with a lot of, like, fake mist and fog, and then, like, this kind of, like, chintzy, like, Greek temple on the inside. Like, it's very much soundstage-y. So much so to the point where the temple starts to, like, fall apart while they're trying to escape. That's part of what facilitates this rushed egress to the water. But while it's falling apart, there's a metal beam that comes off the side of the temple that looks just like it was bolted there, like with modern like riveting technology. Like it just comes free like it was bolted into this stone, which is not how ancient stonework worked yeah and this isn't to say like modern building techniques are better this is just to say they're incredibly different yeah yeah just on an aesthetic level the way that things crumble apart are different based on when they were made oh, another thing that feels a little bit different now than it probably did in 2003 is the so the villain has this i am very scary sequence where he has a number of associates on a plane with him uh, and he has given them all, like, drinks, and then one of them starts horribly dying, and he, like, goes on his villain mon monologue about how, like, he sells mm. deadly viruses. Specifically, the thing that is killing this guy is very fast Ebola. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I know there had been an Ebola scare in the 90s. He also so specifically calls it the deadliest disease known to man. Which right. Um... It, Ebola is 
bad. I don't know if it's the deadliest disease known to man. It's one of those ones where I think this the public's opinion of it is largely skewed because it 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 is one of the scariest looking diseases to get because you do ooze blood. It is it is a really horrifying thing to watch and it does kill a lot of people but how many people it kills varies pretty wildly based on where it is existing so a lot of that is the healthcare you're getting which Mm -hmm. is true of all diseases but i don't know if we really have the like genuine data to say ebola is actually that dangerous or if it just keeps spreading in areas that don't have good enough healthcare to deal with it as a problem yeah like the united states thanks I'm sorry. That was a mean joke. You know, it's actually hit it. Oh, God. We, we so had glad one the of Ebola those. scare happened. Oh, God. Yeah. Before all of this. Anyways, yeah, yeah. I don't want to think about that. The other thing that's weird about his stuff is that he had a cure to everything. Mm-hmm. Like an instant cure, which is wild. That is the thing that feels the most insane. Oh, bonkers conspiracy theory to me about this guy is not that he's selling bioweapons. That's a thing. Like it never really took off in the way that people were worried about because it's just not effective. You can't control it very well, and like you're more likely to take out your own guys than anything else. So Which she makes a really point about off. in this movie, actually. Like all the the worst ones are unstable and burn themselves out, and the ones that are stable aren't deadly. So he's trying to get the plague that will just wipe out everyone except for the people he chooses. Yeah, um, which. But- is essentially the plot of the first Kingsman movie. But that guy wants to turn people crazy violent using a signal sent through cell phones, and he has his select group of world leaders that he has gathered in this compound to protect them from the signal. Hold on, that's a plot from a movie? That's a plot from Kingsman? Oh my god. I've never seen Kingsman. Those movies have very questionable politics as well. (laughs) So yeah, Rice's plan in this movie is very similar. He wants to inoculate his chosen few and wipe out everybody else on the planet. No, I don't think that is his plan. I thought at the end his plan is revealed because it's supposed to be a semi-sympathetic thing where it's like, actually, he just wants every one of these shitty people to get it and they're going to use it and kill themselves and then there will be like a remaining stock of like pure people. Well, yeah, but they're all all the most intelligent and all the most rich. Like It's very eugenics. He's going to inoculate a specific set of people and then he's going to sell the weapon to somebody else, and they're going to be blamed for killing everybody. Yeah, yeah but it's yeah, it's just that he is intending on like the same villainous people that want to buy this like scary Ebola thing at the very beginning are the kind of people he isn't protecting, which is I don't know, interesting at least. I, I, don't I think, think it's, it's more just to scapegoat them, though. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I'm not saying that this, this villain's horrible. Also, the point I was trying to make is that these instant cures are very, like... It's a very cheap device. Mm-hmm. Also, he says Ebola is incredibly contagious. It's not actually very contagious unless you touch the, like, goop coming out of them. Yeah. So, you know, they were fine, but... It doesn't really matter for the movie's sake because fast Ebola never comes back, even though it is like apparently an incredibly effective means of killing someone. That was a weird thing that just feels strange in in the modern time. Uh, One of the things that kind of stood out to me was how like the gentlest parachute landings of all time. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) she she lands in a parachute 
three times throughout the movie. Uh, the first time is when she drops from low Earth orbit in a hypersonic pod and ejects before it explodes in an, into a mountain uh, and lands gently on a dock. Uh, the second time is when they jump off of a building in Shanghai, I think. Um, yes, this Hong is Kong. the wingsuit sequence where they jump off of the building and they have flying squirrel suits and they just like float around for a while. Yeah, and then they very, very gently set down on a boat in like some harbor. And it's just, it's just like stepping off of an escalator gentle. Um, And then the third time happens when she's gone to Africa. She like airdrops into his Jeep, like her friend's Jeep as he's driving it just casually. Her friend who's just Digimon Hensu, which was weird. I liked him. I didn't know who he was, but I liked him. This was before he was really that well known, I think. He's a pretty, pretty mainstream kind of character actor now. He's very likable in basically everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't he's die. in the Marvel movies. He's played like two different characters in the Marvel movies, I think. Yeah. At this point. But overall, he's, yeah, he doesn't die, which is great. Uh, and he wears like traditional African clothing the whole time, but like. While driving a Jeep Rubicon, which <laughs> they custom made for this movie as an advertising gimmick. Of course they did. <laughs> So, yeah, do we want to talk about this film's portrayal of Africa? I mean, I feel like it, I don't, I mean, it. okay, they didn't show any, like, anything else because it's, what they talk, what they did with their portrayal was, like, a lot of traditional stuff and a lot of, like, here, we're going to show you this tribe, and they didn't show any of the modern, like, more, I guess, modernized stuff and cities that are in Africa, because it is a very diverse It's a continent. Place. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big-ass <laughs> continent with a lot of countries. There's stuff going on. And a lot of different biomes and all sorts of stuff. But, like, you know, as you'd expect, you'd get this kind of, like, vaguely deserty savanna. Um, but they meet this tribe in the mountains who are living very traditionally and i mean they seem cool uh they they have them speaking their language and uh digimon hensu translating which i thought it was cool we didn't get subtitles it's just like he's going to tell us what they're saying um, there aren't subtitles for any of the foreign languages in this movie yeah um so it's not just them they don't they don't subtitle the chinese either um which leads to some interesting sequences where people are talking and you don't really know what's going on but like intentionally so i, mm-hmm. I don't mind that as a as long as it's consistent i don't think that's a necessarily a bad technique yeah and then like they they have they seem to know a lot about the creative life and stuff and the, the the point that I suddenly had a problem with, like a, saw a big glaring issue, was when the when Rice's men show up out of helicopters with guns, and the twenty warriors that were sent with them to kind of protect them charge in on them, despite being told to fall back and seeing all of their friends being shot, and they just all die. And it's like, what? The, yeah. they're not that stupid. They're not stupid. They they're living yeah. traditionally. They're not stupid. They know what a gun is. There is there's this very like cannon fodder raising of the stakes moment here, and I don't like that they just introduced a bunch of black characters to murder them. Yeah, and I think what makes that moment a little bit worse even is that directly after this, 
Rice gives Lara the ultimatum of lead us to the cradle of life or we're going to kill all of these people, like the rest of this tribe. But especially her friends that they've held captive. Yeah. Like the lives of, I don't know if it was all 20 of them, but like almost 20 people don't matter as much as these two white dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in the film's conception, which is just like really gross. Yeah. And then when she agrees to lead them there, these tribespeople drop out of the movie entirely and they never show up again until after the final climactic scene. And then it's for this brief one-off joke and then they just leave. Like, we don't even see them, like, mourning their dead. We don't see them mourning their dead. There is a little, like, here is the, like guarantee that we don't have pandora's box and like this medallion to protect it like exchange at the end of the movie like they are being put back in their place as guardians but like wouldn't it make more sense if digimon hensu's character was from this group or like someone in that same role who like matters to the rest of the sequence yeah because they have this very important role theoretically in like guarding this area but they are like kind of just set dressing yeah. which is unfortunate it is unfortunate there's a missed opportunity there to have these characters be more involved and interesting in yeah. the broader story and they just don't do that much with them they yeah. also do I mean, the same thing that they did with like massacring this you know these warriors in like a little bit later when they have all like pretty much exclusively these like chinese gang like mercenaries as the cannon fodder that all get eaten by the shadow guardians like all of them get massacred and then it's we're back with the only important white people and yeah this uh, movie does have a bad habit yeah besides digimon has to there is not a presence of people who actually matter who are not white which you know it's one of those things in these globetrotting movies that comes up from like pretty consistently honestly and i hope we get over it as a culture and start making more diverse things i really think if they're ever going to touch the laura croft franchise as a thing again they should recast her as laura cruz she was intentionally like originally supposed to be latina that would be really interesting Mm. but they're probably not going to do that because the character is established at this point it's (sighs) Yeah, I don't think it's the grossest portrayal. Like, you don't, you see a lot of Chinese, like, people who aren't part of the gang. So it's, like, not, like, all Chinese people are evil gang members. And none of the African characters are, like, shown as, like, mindless savages or anything. Thank God. Yeah. It's just, like, kind of disrespectful as opposed to being, like, actively racist. (laughs) Yeah. Which Uh, is, I mean, I don't like that we're grading on that scale, but it is a scale we have to consider. There's this very nice humanizing scene, very similar to one in the first movie, where this this Chinese family just watching Laura Croft (laughs) fuck with their televisions. They look so confused. So they can Uh, invent, so she can invent Skype and talk to her friends. That is my favorite moment of normal everyday people getting pulled into what's happening is she just shows up on their houseboat and asks them in Chinese if she can use their television. That's what is implied. We don't get subtitles for it. And they're like, sure. So she... Opens up the back of their TV and hotwires it to hook up to her digital camera so she can hook it up to the like satellite uplink she has with her and talk to Bryce over the internet. Yep. Yeah. 
And their little daughter helps by using her chewing gum to stick the camera on top of the TV. <laughs> Uh, and then Gerard Butler shows up like 10 minutes after she leaves and also asks to use their television. He doesn't ask like, to use their television. He's looking for her and they're just like, uh, yeah, I guess she went. She left. <laughs> She's going to Africa. Like, hey, have you seen a weird white lady? Like, yeah, yeah. this is really a weird day for us. <laughs> uh, it's, it's vaguely similar, although I think handled better than the scene in the first movie with uh, the monk with the satellite dish, which is also yeah. one of my favorite moments. Yeah. I, don't know, I guess I just like it when Laura shows up into normal people's lives and like destroys their technology to like, or not even destroys it. She just like has to do spy shit in front of these randos. Yeah. Like, I think I would enjoy it just as much as if she broke into, like, a random family's house in, like, New York. And, like, it was just, like, can I use your, like, phone? And then she, like, I don't know, makes a super phone out of their phone. And they're just, like, who's this lady? We have a super phone now. (laughs) Yeah, we have a super phone. Uh, Gerard Butler. Do we want to talk about Gerard Butler's character in this movie? I forgot how charming Gerard Butler can be. Gerard Butler actually could kind of be likable at the early part of his career. <laughs> Before he, like, I don't know what happened to him. I mean, he's kind of aged into the angry old soldier typecasting at this point, or, like, the angry old criminal typecasting. Either way, they're pretty similar. So he doesn't really get to be this kind of snarky charming like roguish mercenary as often but he's pretty good at it here and they have good chemistry they play off each other quite well Mm -hmm. in my opinion but i also like that yeah this guy is bad news is planted throughout the movie and maybe he's trying too hard to get you to trust him and then like no you can't trust him at the end and they just stick with that She's like, she just yeah, kills him. We we saw this inevitable betrayal coming from like the moment he was introduced. That's fine. I mean, I did hold like it did a good enough job of like obscuring what was gonna be the end that up until he showed up in the like at the Pandora's box, I was like, Oh, maybe he's like actually had like a change of heart and he wants to be decent and like help her, but then like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> It does a pretty good job, though, I think, of doing that, like, will he or won't he be a shitlord? Yeah, Yeah. they kind of do the Han Solo thing with him, but in reverse, where partway through the plot, after they have finished dealing with the Shailing, which is what he was hired to help with, because he had been involved with them before and knew their organization, Lara basically says that his deal has been honored and he can leave like he she gives him an out because she knows that if he stays any longer he's probably going to turn on them so she gives him this opportunity to get out of prison like get immunity that was part of the deal and just like go off and start a new life and he defies that by coming back and helping free bryce and hillary at the end But at the last moment, when he is presented with the temptation that she was afraid of, he gives into it. It's a really interesting character arc that I feel like is really well executed, actually. (laughs) And it justifies Lara's feelings, which is kind of nice. I like that the movie 
kind of tries to play the oh she's too guarded card but then at the end is like nope she's exactly the right amount of guarded she should not have trusted this guy so that's mm-hmm. nice. Um, this movie has Laura with a pair of Google glasses, which is hilarious. They're not yeah. Google glasses, but they look exactly like Google Glass. And there's a lot of Panasonic tech around, which is weird. Like everything is Panasonic. They probably had some kind of a licensing deal. Yeah, it just gets noticeable later in the movie. Um, yeah. The Google glasses look silly, and then they get stolen, I think. Yeah, Rice gets hold of them. She like leaves it in his lab, and that's how he tracks down Bryce to the mansion. Yeah, her Google glasses. <laughs> All right, Nathan, did you have any fun facts about this movie? Because I feel like we're winding into the end zone here. Uh, there really wasn't that much to find about this movie. I mean... The creative team is kind of interesting. Uh, The writer hasn't done a lot. Um, The guy who actually wrote the screenplay. But the story that the screenplay was written off of was by Stephen D'Souza, writer of Street Fighter. So a returning writer-director of Street Fighter. uh, Returning favorite (laughs) on the show. Uh, But also the writer of Die Hard, which is a fantastic movie, and that Jan de Bont did the cinematography for. Yeah, so they've worked together, which maybe explains why this movie feels, I don't know, more cohesive on some level. It definitely feels cohesive, which is weird that this is a thing I keep coming back to, but given the quality of the movies on this podcast, I just have to keep (laughs) mentioning, this movie functions as a movie. This movie meets the bare minimum requirements to be called a it's, it's, it's a good movie. I feel like when we get to the new Laura Croft, the 2018 film, we'll have some... We'll talk about this movie a little bit more because there were quite a few parallels between both of these Laura Croft movies and the new one. Significantly more than I expected in this specific movie. Like, there's... Like, the villain has very similar motivations, actually, um, if memory serves. Honestly, the 2018 Lara Croft movie is super forgettable, so I don't know if I remember it super mm. clearly or not. Um, Alicia Vikander's in it. She's kind of less charismatic than Angelina Jolie, but, you know, Angelina Jolie is, as, as I said last time, very likable as Lara Croft. That's debatable by some people. I, I don't necessarily have an opinion on it, but I know people who are deep into conspiracy theories. Okay, but that's not really Angelina Jolie's fault as an actress. I mean, there was also dislike there before all of this nonsense happened, but I don't I think know why. Laura, I think Angelina Jolie is one of those actresses that it is very easy for people to dislike, partially because she's kind of openly, openly kind of a weird person and very, very sexualized by most films she's in and not seemingly super uncomfortable with that. Uh, that throws a lot of people for a loop just because we live in the society we live in, which is garbage. <laughs> yeah. Not that I'm defending every sexy thing Angelina Jolie's ever done as like inherently empowering or anything, but I do think she's a presence that people find intimidating mm. and I mean, therefore easily dislikable. They're, her first, I want to point out that her very first line in this movie is a sex joke. Yes, but it's a sex joke she's making yeah. <laughs> at dudes. Which is nice. Of the characters in this movie that like get to be actively sexual, it's mostly Lara at other people. She doesn't get sexualized very often. Occasionally by Gerard Butler, but really only in the one scene where they're making out. And they're both kind of engaging in that. Yeah. 
And interestingly, never by the villain, which mm. is a thing you see in a lot of movies like this, where there is like a sexualized main character who is a woman. You often have some kind of sexual tension or like uh, sexualization visited on them by the villain. Either that or they're very infantilized by the villain. Like, yeah. oh, this is too big for you, little girl. And they don't do that in this movie. It's mostly like she is a adversary that is a problem because she keeps getting in the way, not because she's a woman. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just keep expecting these movies to be worse than they are on this front. And they are not meeting that expectation, which I'm glad <laughs> for. Like, the movie so far that I think is worst in, in VGTM history for sexualization is probably the second Mortal Kombat movie with the naked Asian lady who just shows up for no apparent reason, this. but she's also the villain. It's a, a, a nobody fucking cares about Annihilation. That movie's trash. But <laughs> <laughs> this movie is is like quality trash. It's like totally watchable. If yeah. you like, again, this is my... In 2003, if it was like a nice summer before a pandemic happened and I wanted to go see a movie, I would see this and walk out of the theater being like, that was fun. There was some good stunts in that. A I lot wonder of if stunts. That's... <laughs> a lot of flips. I like it when she does flips. I mean, the only positive memory I have of Prince of Persia, the movie, which we will talk about eventually, is that the main character does that thing where he runs up a wall and does a backflip, and I thought that was super <laughs> cool. So maybe let's just say I'm I'm easily I'm I'm easily impressed by people doing like a parkour. I think Prince of Persia is kind of fun, but we'll get there. Yeah, I kind There's of. A, I saw it in theaters. I actually kind of liked it at the time. I, th I think I saw it at a drive-in, but we're it's, uh, we're getting off course here. Pretty grossly whitewashed. Yeah, but, it is. It's... You know, we'll, we'll get there. We'll we'll talk about that when we when we come to that bridge. Um, but I think we have basically said all there is to say about oh, Tomb Raider uh, colon Laura Croft M dash the Cradle of Life, except for we haven't discussed the actual meaning of that title. Oh, the Cradle of Life is the location in Africa that is supposedly where the seed of life was planted after Pandora's box was open. But like, it implies that that's where all of life came from. And also there's like crazy, like gravity and stuff. It is kind of implied that humans are the result of an ancient aliens situation. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe. Hmm. It's the, the idea is that there is a, a certain level of truth to the Pandora myth. But in reality, the two things that were in the box were life and anti-life, which is the plague that Jonathan Rice is after. It's that Alexander the Great found the goddamn box and it killed all of his soldiers. So he was like, this box is bad news. Yeah. I'm going to put the box in my temple. But then like later... He's they like, put it in. They put it back put it in, in the, the cradle. cradle. I think he put it in the cradle and kept his map in the temple. Yeah. Yes. So, but he kept the map, which seems like, come on, dude. It's it the like same problem hidden, with the. It was like, it was a like his temple, personal though. vault. But it was still. He kept the map and the decoder across from each other in the <laughs> same room. When he said specifically he put it back so nobody would ever be able to find it again. It's the same problem for the first movie. If you have three magical artifacts you need to get to the deadly thing, destroy one of the artifacts. It's not that hard. 
It's a glass orb. <laughs> I could destroy that accidentally. I mean, it's not hollow. It's solid. I could still fuck it up. <laughs> it's also magic. It's a magic glass orb. Now, is it supposed to be a magic glass orb or like a fancy science orb? Because this... that's unclear. It's a holograph orb. It's very... It's a holograph it's... orb that produces holograms in a very fixed sphere in like that they project onto onto the air around you, not the walls, the air when show, when exposed to a very specific frequency of sound. It looks like the orb from Treasure Planet a little it, bit. Yeah, a little but... bit. Uh, not nearly as sci-fi because it's literally just video feeds. This orb cannot be destroyed by any craft we here possess. It must be taken to the fires of Mount Doom from once it was forged. <laughs> In a glass-blowing tutorial Sauron was doing. <laughs> he was feeling fancy that week. Well, you know. Sometimes you just need to get out of the house. He's done so much metallurgy. He just wanted to try something new. Uh, you know, I'm I'm oh, here also, for the secret spinoff of Lord of the Rings, where he got into he did a, like a week of glowing like bowls of glass. <laughs> the box is also very pretty. Whoever did the like uh, the engraving on that box, I plus oh, yeah. very nice yeah. work. There's some really good prop work in this movie with the artifacts. Yeah, unironically, the prep works. It is very nice in this movie. Like, the people who made the stuff in this movie clearly put a lot of effort into it. Even the stuff that I think looks chintzy, it's got, like, it's there, and it's got weight to it. It's not... Mm -hmm. I prefer it when they look more like a theme park than when it looks like a green screen room, especially mm -hmm. in this time period. Like, the shark is yeah. bad CG, and the shadow warriors are kind of hit or miss, but... They're and mostly in darkness and they're moving really fast, so it's yeah, it's fine. The villain getting melted in a pit of acid is a little bit weird looking, but you know, it's it comes and goes pretty quickly. I thought it was pretty good for two thousand three. <laughs> for two thousand three, it's, it's decent fine. for the time. It just kind of it looks dated now. It's a yeah. lot less weird than the time bullets skinless dog sequence uh, yeah. in the first one. Oh, and it's, it's way similar. better than the liquor in Resident Evil yeah. as well. It's uh, yeah. Do we want to quickly talk about the Shadow Guardians? Because I do think that's one of the coolest elements of the world building of this, is that there are these creatures that seem to either be or like able to put themselves into rocks and trees and yeah. then just like grab people into them and they just splatter into blood. So like uh, a part of the myth that the Guardians, I guess it's not really a myth in the context of the movie, but a part of the story that the tribe that guards the Cradle of Life know is that there are these shadow guardians surrounding the crater that defend the resting place of Pandora's box. And Lara and Jimon Hounsou's character know this, but Jonathan Rice and his mercenaries don't, so they lead them into essentially a trap where they enter the, the decayed land at the top of this mountain around the Cradle of Life. And as they are going through this, the, these like twisted trees and rocks and stuff, all of a sudden these monsters start popping out of the 
like bark of the trees and the faces of rocks and just grabbing people and then diving back into the trees or rocks and just the people just like disintegrate into goo as they as they get taken in, like by the monsters and it's it looks really good and it's a really tense scene too because they're yeah. like it's they're, erupts they're just into all teeth chaos. and claws it the, like the whole thing erupts into chaos and everyone's like shooting at them and running away and then some of the characters that kind of know what's going on are like tiptoeing around trying not to like alert the guardians to their presence yeah as far yeah. as like there are secret mystical guardians of a space that like nobody has noticed over thousands of years that is a clever way of doing it they're in the rocks and they don't wake up unless you're in their way yep <laughs> like they're... they could have very easily gone with like there's scary soldier carvings or whatever but it's like no it's nature killing you <laughs> <laughs> on on the topic of uh spooky magic guardians I was expecting the terracotta warriors to wake up and like fight, but I think that must have been some other movie. What movie am I thinking of? Oh, uh, you are probably thinking of the mummy tomb of the dragon emperor. That's a movie that I don't know I've ever seen, but may have seen a part of. I think terracotta warriors coming to life and doing fighting things is a thing that has happened in multiple movies. To be Mm. fair, it's kind of obvious it has, yeah. but I'm pretty sure Brendan Fraser fights a bunch of them in that movie. Yeah, it's like near the end in a tomb. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's probably it. Then. I probably saw the end of that movie because I've definitely not watched any of the Mummy movies all the way through. Well, you should watch the They're first one. Actually. It's got the, strong the bisexual one. energy. The first one's really is, is a fun movie. Hmm. I, I, I had strong bisexual energy in the sense that basically everybody in the movie is really hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the same goes right. for this movie to be fair almost every main character in this movie is really hot and a bunch of the villains like rice isn't but the leader of the <laughs> chinese gang is really cute yeah he looks a little bit like uh like pop like k-pop j-pop c is there he does, c-pop he has a little... star is c-pop a thing i don't think c-pop's taken up but know. he does have a bit of that like that like modern like hot pretty boy asian actor kind of vibe yeah. or like singer vibe he's he's just attractive and then digimon hensu shows up and you're like well yeah of course digimon hensu's here and then you're reminded that gerard butler is actually very cute as a like younger guy yeah everybody who's like there and not a comedic character or the villain is pretty much attractive by default <laughs> anyways that's my review my score for this movie is mostly hot guys <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, are we at ratings already? Yes, that was my okay. rating. My rating um, is mostly hot guys. Okay, my my serious rating for this movie is that in the realm of uh, action adventure movies from the early aughts, you can do far worse than The Cradle of Life. I'm not going to say that it's like a hidden masterpiece, but it's just a solid movie overall. You can have a lot of fun with it, and it is tighter and more grounded than the first movie. And also, you don't need to watch the first movie. If oh. you just want to watch this one, yeah. there's no context you are missing. You can it pick has this no up. connecting tissue. Yeah, you can pick this up without having seen the first movie. It's fine. Um, yeah, Bryce and my... the butler are just as irrelevant in this one as they were in the first. <laughs> yeah. I still don't know why they're hanging. They're not from the games, really. I think she has a butler in the game, but he's like an older dude, and he's not really 
really that important. Anyway. Hillary's actually better in this movie because she does like sword fencing practice with yeah. Laura. So the, that sequence where they're doing fencing and also debrief is very fun. Yes. This movie also does a pretty good job of combining its its exposition with arguably unnecessary action scenes. But they do pay <laughs> off later. So they're not completely unnecessary. Uh, anyway... My joke rating for this movie is uh, two pistols out of shotgun. <laughs> uh, I think I'm right. sticking with my guns on haha <laughs> guns on uh, that I gave kind of at the beginning, which is lots of stunts, mostly unnecessary, even in context. <laughs> but I've kind of come around on it a little bit. So like, I don't dislike it now. It's just like there are a lot of stunts and most of them didn't need to be there but it's fine well you see this movie had 20 million dollars less in its budget than the first one so i think they were making up for the lack of big special effects moments with stunts i give this movie the water world theme park stunt show spectacular <laughs> out of film uh, out of the wild west stunt show at knott's Berry farm <laughs> Three parachutes out of Big Tall Tower. <laughs> this movie also did the squirrel suits before fucking Transformers did. There's a big, it was like a big deal that there was the big squirrel suit stunt scene in one of the Transformers movies. But Tomb Raider did it first. Hashtag Tomb Raider did it first. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for joining us for Video Game the Movie, the podcast. I know this one was a bit rambly, but shut up. Uh, <laughs> You're not my dad. You're not my real dad podcast audience. audience. All right. Seriously, though, thanks for listening. Uh, Lexi, where can people find you? Uh, you can where can find they find you, Lexi? Okay. Uh, now I don't want to tell, tell you because... I'm pretty sure Kenzie's going to start stalking me. Uh, you can find me at on Twitter at Conwell underscore Alex or on Facebook where I kind of do music stuff a little bit, where I talk about, where I post about like gigs that I'm doing um, on Facebook at Alex Conwell Creative. All right, it's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at Bert Nerdtram. And you can find this show on Twitter at VGTM Podcast. And you can find me at Kenzie Phoenix on Twitter and probably not in real life because stay in your goddamn homes. Yeah. All right. You can Thanks also find all of us oh. on uh, Dice Weave. It's an actual play podcast. We're doing sci-fi stuff. It's Mass Effect. It's a lot of shenanigans and musicals for yeah, some reason. It's a good show. Listen to it. All right. It's a lot of fun. Peace out, y'all. And don't forget, game over. <laughs> I believe next week we're going to be talking about Alone in the Dark. Okay. So look forward to that. I guess it'll be two weeks since we publish every two weeks. Next time. Next time. Spook em ups. Alone in the Dark. <laughs> don't forget to save. Yeah, whenever you're editing anything, whether it be writing or an, a <laughs> podcast, save yes. every single change you make. Just this do it. A, Just press Control S. It's yes. easy. Just train your muscles every like train like Laura thirty Croft seconds does. or whatever to just hit the Control S command. It's it's it'll save you so much headache. Honestly, remember, kids, you can't save the world if you don't save your documents. <laughs> <laughs>
that's it. Yeah, that's, that's the one. That's a joke we can end on. All right. All, all right. right. <laughs> that was a good one.